Um, let me catch you up to speed real quickly. We're in the middle of a series of lessons entitled Angry Red Letters, and we're looking at some of the um, times that we see Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, a little agitated, a little frustrated, sometimes downright mad, and, uh, and looking at what it is that causes Jesus consternation. Because as we have said many times, when we better understand what upset him, we can better understand how to be pleasing to him. And so, continuing our series, today we're going to be looking at a lesson on moralism. In John chapter 17 and verse 15, we have this passage, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Here Jesus is uh, talking to his father about the ongoing mission that he has for his apostles, for his disciples. He had a clear mission for them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he puts it this way. He talks to them and he says specifically, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, and no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This was how Jesus left marching orders for his apostles. He said, You're to be a light. You're to be a city on a hill. You're to be a lamp on a stand. And you're to shine that light so that people will see your Father at work in you. And we today as the church are the continuation of that mandate. That's still the mission that's ours to, to uphold. That's the, that's the marching orders under which we've been commissioned. To let our lights shine into a world of darkness. But here's a couple of things that we need to understand. <laughs> Just like that old children's song that we all sang as kids, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Not under a basket, but on a stand. But here's the deal. We can't be a light to a world if we never are in the world. We can't be a light to the world if we don't shine into the world. We can't be a light to the world if we're not engaged in the world. If we don't live among those who need it, how can we bring the light to it? If I am only condemning and judging, I'm no better off than one that doesn't have a light to offer. We uh, find ourselves with a temptation that we might have to, to isolate ourselves and to remove ourselves from the very mission that we're called to. To, to be separated from the world to such an extent that we can't shine our light into that darkness. One writer, a modern writer who I like very much, calls this modern approach to the Christian life, he calls it light parties. He says, we're spending all of our time with other lights, listening to our light music, enjoying our light activities, and we're failing miserably to shine into the darkness of the world. In John chapter 1, Jesus famously is described as the light who shone into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not affect the light, but the light did affect the darkness. And Jesus in his own life gives us a pattern for how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be those who are shining out into the darkness of this world. Not being affected by it, but affecting it with the light that Jesus gives us to shine. And that is the direction that we're called to. And when we don't, when they didn't, Jesus got angry. One of the things that we see Jesus getting heartburn about was when people judged others as unworthy of the light that they possess. When people judged others as unworthy of the light 
that they possess. If we're not careful, we can be guilty of that today. Luke chapter 15, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. That word complain in the NLT, it's rendered in the NIV to be muttering. I actually like the word muttering there because it just, it's kind of an onomatopoeia. It just kind of sounds like what it is. The word mutter, just, you can't say mutter without being in a gripey mood. And that's exactly what it describes. That's exactly what it describes. It describes, well, interestingly, it comes from a Greek word. Bishop's not here to correct me, so I can say it any way I want. The Greek word is diagoguzo, diagoguzo which means a rumbling, grumbling, complaining. Anyone want to guess what word we have from that root today? Diarrhea. A rumbling, grumbling, complaining. That's what that word comes from. That's where that word comes from, and that gives us a picture of how upset these people were that Jesus was associating with sinners. They muttered. They muttered and they complained because Jesus was supposed to be a good person and he was spending time with an undesirable group of people. How could he, they thought, be around people like that? How could he be with them? They are not like us. They don't subscribe to our ways. They don't subscribe to our morals. They don't follow our lifestyles. They are beneath us. They are unworthy of us. They're not worthy of our presence, of our love, our message, our light. This attitude puts a light under a basket. It takes the light off the stand and places it where it can't shine into the darkness. And the darkness then is unaffected by and unhelped by the light that it could have. There's a word for this. The word for this is moralism. The Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, which many of you probably know, a very well-respected organization, uh, defines moral, uh, moralism as this, a morality that has no links to God or the orders of creation, but that defines good and evil on its own. Basically what this is meaning is it means that you are judging other people based on whether or not they see the world the way you do, do things the way you do. Moralism draws its strength from the lines that it can delineate between good and bad. Now, good and bad, right and wrong, not based on God. You'll notice in the definition, it doesn't say based on biblical principle. It, it's based on our morals. It's based on our standards and what we call um, each other to hold to. Morals by our standards leads to moralism. Let me give you some examples. In my life, and this is true, in my life I have heard Bible classes, I, I have heard sermons preached on any number of morals, moral ideas that have some claim to Scripture but are not biblical truths. For example, I was taught from a very young age that good people do not play games that have dice in them. Good people do not ever play games with any kind of card. Good people don't listen to modern music. They don't watch TV. We didn't have a TV in my house till I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, they don't go to the movies. They don't drink. They don't dance. They don't get tattoos. They don't wear shorts. They don't grow beards. We had a whole list of all these moral codes and principles that we would teach in Bible class and we would preach sermons on. And every one of them came with this convoluted long string of biblical scriptures that were woven together to show this is what good people don't do. But the problem was... 
This is exactly the principle Jesus got mad at. People speaking words for God that are not God's words. You know, as a kid, though, I got to tell you, as a young adult, I have to, I have to you know, admit, it really made life easy. It really made life very, very simple for me. That guy was wearing shorts. Do you know that I went to summer camp in Missouri for summer after summer after summer in jeans? In jeans. Because it was so ingrained in me that if you wear shorts, that is, that is not what good people do. And I tell you, all I got from my troubles was self-righteous attitude and sweaty. Did he have a tattoo? Whew. Did he have a motorcycle and a tattoo? Did he have a motorcycle, a tattoo, and a beard? <laughs> Lost cause. Did he have a tendency to listen to rock music? These are, these are not the people that we associate with. These are not, I was raised to believe, good people. Because you see, we were speaking words for God that were not God's words. And it's moralism. One of my favorite writers and preachers, uh, he recently was deceased, Tim Keller. He had this to say about moralism. This is his quote. One of the problems with moralism, the idea that you can merit God's salvation by your good works and your moral efforts, is that it is profoundly hypocritical. It cannot live up to its own standards. Moralism will put an obstacle between God and man by adding moral hoops to jump through. And we already have seen how upset Jesus gets when we block people from knowing the love of God. Furthermore, it's really hard to fall into, a, it's really hard to a, be a, a disciple of moralism and not fall into judgmental thinking. The whole system of moralism is built so that I can know who I'm better than. It's always built around this idea of condemning others and judging others and looking down on others. And that's something that we see very clearly. In fact, if you want to open up to our next text, it's going to be in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Luke chapter 18, a case study in moralism. If ever there was a place in scripture that we wanted to go to, to get a good picture of moralism and how you live up to this great standard of moralism, this is where we would go. Luke chapter 18 starts this way, uh, sorry, verse 9 starts this way. Then Jesus told us the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give 10% of all of my income. Well, if ever we wanted a set of instructions on how to live this moralist lifestyle, this would be a great place to go. If we wanted to learn how to be self-aggrandizing and uh, condemning, this is a great place for us to notice. Look, this with, look at this first with me. Notice how conveniently people can be placed in sin categories. Notice how conveniently people can be placed in sin categories. Here it says cheaters, sinners, adulterers. The NIV puts it robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. And this is a really important step 
as we work towards being moral, self-righteous, religious people, reduce everyone you know down to their sin category. They're no longer people because the process is dehumanizing. They're simply their sins. That person who lives down the street who's a mother of three, a a teacher and a volunteer volleyball coach and a 4-H leader? No. She's not of that. She's, She's just a sinner. She's just a sinner. That guy in the cubicle next to yours? He ceases to be a a husband. He ceases to be a dad or a co-worker, a baseball card collector. Once you find out that he's had an affair, oh, no, he's just an adulterer now. And that's an important step on the road to being a legalist. I'm sorry, to being a moralist. It is to be judgmental, to put people in their proper category. It lowers them beneath you. It raises you above them. And it helps you forget that they've been made in God's image and that Jesus Christ loved them so much that he gave his life for them. Nope. Dehumanize them, categorize them, judge them, condemn them, and then look upon them with an air of superiority or completely ignore them as insignificant. So that's the first step. Second step, equally important step, Make a comprehensive list of all the stuff you do really well. Make a big list of all the things that you are really, really good at. Especially if what you do is spectacular, over-the-top, extra credit kind of stuff. Now, here's where the modern world, we have such an advantage over this Pharisee. I mean, how sad. This Pharisee only had the few people around him to hear this. What would he have done with Facebook? I mean, you could have seriously. We have so many more advantages today of being able to publicize to literally the whole world all the great things that we do, how great we are and how lucky God must be to have us. If this poor Pharisee would have had a YouTube channel, he would have been an influencer. Notice a few things. Extra credit stuff. Fast Twice a week. He fasts twice a week. Now, that's really impressive when you consider that in the Old Testament, you know how many days a year they were required to fast? Uno. You were required to fast one day every year on the Day of Atonement. That was the one day that everyone was required to fast. He went at it 104 times a year. 104 times a year and made no bones about broadcasting it to anybody who would listen. In fact, did you see how he went about this? He stood off by himself. He raised his voice so he could be heard. And he announced publicly to the crowd all the great things he does. I fast twice a week. The the scholars tell us that um, the Pharisees who had this twice a week practice, very coincidentally, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. In the ancient world, do you know what Mondays and Thursdays just happen to be? Market days. And so, on Monday and on Thursday, they would screw up their face as much as possible, wear their, uh, their morning robes, they would uh, mess up their hair, they would even put on a form of makeup to make themselves look disheveled and to look miserable, and they would walk around letting everybody know how hungry and miserable they were because of how incredibly pious 
they were. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16. He says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. They try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth. That is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, if you're lucky enough to have some. Wash your face, and no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. It's very possible that exactly the kind of thing that we're seeing in this Pharisee is what Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 6. Make a list of all the things you do great and tell everybody that'll listen. Put everybody else in their sin category so you can look down on them. But what about the other person in this story? What about the other character in this story? The tax collector. The story goes on to tell us that he couldn't even so much as bear to lift his eyes up towards heaven. But beat his chest. And begged God to be merciful on him, a sinner. How must he have felt? Well, if you ask the Pharisee, he probably felt exactly the way he was supposed to feel. That's how he should have felt, the Pharisee would think. It's probably what he deserves. He knew he didn't deserve God to hear his prayer. He knew he didn't deserve the grace of God to forgive him. He knew that he had no place, no worth, no value to stand before Almighty God and make any request known. But he prayed it anyway. But he asked anyway. He came before God anyway. And perhaps he understood something even more clearly than he understood his own sin. He understood God's grace. You see, in his world, he was in his own sin category. Tax collector. I mean, you don't get much lower than that. In the ancient world, the prostitutes and the tax collectors argued about who was worse. You were at the very bottom of the barrel. When you're a tax collector, you're literally at the very bottom. You can't hardly do anything. Did you know as a tax collector, you had your Jewish rights stripped from you? When you became a tax collector, you weren't allowed to any longer go into the temple courts where the Jews could go. You had to worship out where the Gentiles worshipped. We've already talked about what happens how Jesus feels about people being barred from worship. But that's how they were, that's how they were uh, labeled. They were worse than Gentiles. And you talk about dehumanizing. They're not people who collect taxes for a living. But they are tax collectors. They are not people who are committing that sin, but they are sinners. And no longer worthy of even being considered people. Dehumanizing them makes it easier to look down on them. And that's exactly what that Pharisee was doing. But let's look at how this plays out in our modern world. One writer that I like very much calls this gracism. Graceism. Like racism, but graceism. Applied to grace. And gracism is a moralist's best friend. Because gracism is a hatred of other people based on the category you put them in. And this can become a very, very helpful tool for a moralist. If I'm right with God by not being in those categories, then I have to provide evidence that I'm really not in those categories. 
I have to have some way of proving through my good works and my good deeds that I'm not like those people. And so we have a whole litany of things that we jump through. I only watch PG movies. I only listen to Christian music. I only watch Disney movies. Or now, I guess, I never watch Disney movies. I, I never work on Saturday. I, I only do church activities with my kids. I never wear shorts. I, I never go to public pools. I only read Christian authors. You get the point. What are we doing? We're desperately trying to provide evidence that we're not in a certain sin category. And we're trying desperately to prove that somebody else is. Because that's what a moralist wants to do. A moralist wants to feel better about themselves by being able to look down on all the people who don't do what they do. And the Jews had this down to a science. They had it down to a science. Here, here's, here's what it would have looked like back then. The hierarchy, okay? The moral hierarchy for the Jew. At the very top rung, you had the Pharisees. Top of the ladder, top rung, Pharisees. And then the teachers of the law... And then the normal good Jews. And then the proselytes. Those are the con converts to Judaism. And then you've got fishermen. We'll get to that one in a minute. That's a weird one. Then you've got fishermen. Then you've got sinners. Prostitutes, tax collectors, we've argued. Ah. And then Cubs fans. It, even back then. I, I kid you not. Even back then. Even back then. And it never fails. Gracism says, I am higher than you. Gracism says, I'm at a better level than you are, and I have all these reasons to prove it. Gracism says, because I am at a higher level than you, I'm more valuable to God than you are. I'm more loved by God than you are. I'm more acceptable to God than you are. And my moral, upright standards of my own making are my reason to be confident in my salvation. Well, one day, the hierarchy problem came to roost among Jesus' own friends. See, we have this interesting story in the Bible that's easy for us to step over and miss the significance of. And I have to admit, for a long time, I did not understand the significance of this. But what, does what do Jesus' friends do when a person of a lower sin category than them is part of the number? Matthew tells the story in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, and it's not just the story, it's his story. It's his story. And Matthew tells us in 9.9 that Jesus came on that fateful day, he was doing his job, he was working at his little tax collecting booth, doing his tax collecting work. And Jesus came along with his little group of mangy fishermen and said to him the most surprising words that he could possibly think to hear, follow me. Pause there. Let's go back to these mangy fishermen. Remember a minute ago when I told you that fishermen were a sin category? They were very much looked down upon by the good Jews. Good Jews weren't fishermen. Because as fishermen, they, they couldn't follow all the ritual practices. They didn't follow all the cleanliness. And besides that, they were just a mangy group of guys that didn't really have a whole lot of place for rules. And so you have this problem where society looked down on the fishermen. But the fishermen definitely looked down on the tax collectors. You see, there was a long-standing feud between fishermen and tax collectors in those days. And it's pretty simple if you think about why. It's hard sometimes for a tax collector to really know the truth of how much somebody 
earned or got or, or made in a particular day or week or month, but it's really easy when you're a fisherman. True story. The tax collectors would get up early in the morning and they would come out to the seashore and wait for the fishermen to come in. And as soon as they hit the shore, they jumped in their boat and started counting fish to take their share right there out of the boat. Now, these fishermen who already don't like rules, who don't like people in their boats, don't like people touching their stuff, have worked all night long to meager out a few little fish. And the first thing they do when they hit shore is have some tax collector jump in their boat and start grabbing it. They didn't get along. You see, when Jesus looked at Matthew and said, follow me, from the fisherman's perspective, Jesus was saying, join us. Whoa, Jesus, the fisherman said. Oh, no, 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 no. He's in a lower sin category than we are. He's in a lower sin category than we are. I don't want to associate with, with a tax collector. It's bad enough that I'm already looked down on by everybody else, but now i got to have this guy who's going to join us and follow us and be around us. Another little side story. How interesting it is that Jesus' inner circle is made up of a tax collector, fisherman, and a zealot. You guys know what a zealot is? A zealot was a group of people who were so opposed to the Roman government that they went into insurrections and revolts and they assassinated people who worked with the Romans. They assassinated people who worked with the Romans like, oh, I don't know, tax collectors. Can you imagine out there on those nights spent under the stars? Matthew is laying down on his little mat to try to go to sleep with fishermen, 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 zealot. You got to believe it was kind of hard for him to close his eyes. Wait, Jesus. We don't want him to join us. He's not on our level. It happened in Jesus' day. And it happens in our day today as well. Matthew heard those fateful words, follow me, and he jumped for joy. He left it all and ran to Jesus. The very next verse says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is just going down the, the, the moral ladder, one rung at a time. Normal Jews, boom, welcome. Uh, fishermen, boom, welcome. Sinners, boom, welcome. Tax collectors, boom, welcome. I wonder sometimes if Jesus' favorite name for himself might have been the name that people derisively said about him in Matthew 19.11 when they called him a friend of sinners and tax collectors. You know, in a way, I think that would have made Jesus very happy to hear that. Because that's exactly what he came to do. You know, it's not going to be long before some upper-rung moralist gets really bent about all this. In fact, it takes one verse. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, saw what? Sinners and tax collectors eating with Jesus. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What were they saying? How can someone who claims to be good associate with them? And Jesus answered, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. It is not the light that needs the light, it's the darkness. And after that, Jesus follows with a statement that we've heard every single week in this series. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But one more statement he adds. For I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I'm not here to call those who think they are righteous. I'm not here to call those who have their moral high ground, who have their own set of standards and rules that they judge everybody else by. I'm not here to call those who have their upper rung leader, uh, leadership of their own way of looking down on everyone else. I'm here to call the ones who know what is already true, that they're sinners. And in this hierarchy, there's really only two categories. There are those of us who are in the moralist, I'm better than you camp, are those of us that are in the realist, I'm a sinner camp. And a little hint, whichever camp we think we're in, we're all sinners. We're either posting our self-righteous moral high ground on Facebook and Instagram so that everybody can see the evidence of us being in a higher sin category than others. Or we beat our breast and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. We can't be confident in our moral standard and in His mercy. We have to pick. I'm going to be really transparent for a second. Um, this week I had a serious gut punch in preparing this lesson. Because I keep thinking of my past. And I keep thinking of all those moralistic standards that I've always held in my past. My childhood and my teen years and my early adulthood. And I, I get so grateful that I'm not that anymore. And I read this line in this book written by a preacher. And I'll just quote it. If I am not careful at this point as a church leader... I could easily say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other Christians who are hypocrites and self-righteous. I get it. I've got it figured out. My church is for sinners and tax collectors. Ouch. I mean, seriously, ouch. The very moral high ground that I've preached on all this time is a moral high ground that just kicked me in the gut. Because I might have put different standards to it, but I'm doing the same thing. I'm wanting to make sure I provide evidence for how good I am and reasons to look down on those that aren't. And I think ultimately it comes down to something I've struggled with my whole life, and I bet you have too. It's the GSC. The good soil complex. I, my name is Jeff and I have GSC. And you probably do too. If you've never heard of the good soil complex, here it is. This parable of the sower, you're familiar with the parable of the sower. 
sower goes to sow the seed and he goes and he sows the seed on different pieces of land and he sows the seed on the roads and he sows the seed on, on the weedy area and he sows the seed in the thorny area and he sows the seed in the good soil and what do all Christians always assume? I'm the good soil. And not only that, but uh, so-and-so is definitely weedy. And so-and-so is thorny. That is a road person if ever I've met one. But I am solidly the good soil. You know, I don't think that story was written. I don't think that story was told so that we, thousands of years later, could sit around in our self-righteous uh, attitudes and assume that we are the good soil. This week has taught me that I need a really good dose of tax collector in my prayer life. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. God, it's so easy for us to fall into Pharisee thinking. It's so easy that we don't even realize we're doing it. We don't know that it's upon us. It's so easy to be judgmental and hypocritical. It's so easy, God, to hold up these moral platitudes of our own creation to lord over others how good we are. But God, just bust through all of that. Bring all those delusions right clearly into our, our focus, into our sight, and just show us the reality of our ways. Show us the ways that we're being hypocrites. Show us the ways that we're being judgmental. And help us to adopt the humble and beautiful posture of the tax collector who just begged. Have mercy on me, a sinner. God, we ask this to be our prayer. Bless it to us in your son's name. Amen. It ends, though. I tell you, this sinner... Not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exhausted, exalted, justified. This man went home justified. My old preacher Dan Winkler used to say, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what we want. That's what this tax collector wanted. That's what you and I know in the depths of our soul we need. We hunger to be able to stand before God justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. And you know what? The love of God is enabled to path for that to happen. A means by which that can take place. Because Jesus Christ loved us enough that he came and he gave his own life on a cross and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and he left us a path of redemption that we can follow to repent of our sins, to make him the Lord of our life, to join him in the waters of baptism and come cleansed and justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. If this is a way that we can help you today, if this is a decision you're ready to make, or if we can help you in any way, won't you come in the back of this room, we meet together, our leaders, and welcome anyone who we can pray with, talk with, study with, be of service to. If you have need, let us know as together we stand and sing.